Please open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. We're going to be concluding our uh, series on marriage as we've kind of gotten back into Mark. Uh, But before we read the passage, I just wanted to uh, call your attention this insert in your bulletin. I'd love for you to be praying for these folks uh, going out from from, uh, our church community in March for different uh, ministry and mission opportunities. Uh, Katie Elliott's going to Panama, Madeline Moss to Rwanda, Dan Babish to Togo, uh, sort of West Africa, Ali Pananis to Mexico. So we would love for you to, to keep them in your prayers. All right. Well, you've been standing, so just remain seated. I'm going to read God's Word. This is uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. So Jesus left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up and in order to test him, asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And he answered them, what did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to him but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let me pray for us. Lord, we pray that you would speak to us this morning, uh, send your spirit to open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, and conform us more and more to the image of Jesus who loves us, who gave himself for us, who suffered for us to prove his love and to redeem us. We pray that you would get glory now. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, um. We're going to wrap up this series on marriage, uh, and I want to thank those of you who are not married uh, for hanging in there with us uh, through this series. I'm well aware that it'd be very, very easy to feel kind of alienated, like you're listening to somebody else's mail, somebody else's sermon. And we've been trying to point out that a lot of the principles that are healthy in a relationship are really healthy in all relationships. Uh, They're healthy in a marriage or healthy in all relationships uh, so whether that's friendships, whether that's you know, extended family, whether that's school, whether that's work, whether that's your community, whatever, um, and I think that's going to apply again today, but I just want to thank you for supporting the series if you're not married and if you're a single person. Um, we're going to be uh, talking this morning uh, about kind of the, a little bit about the beauty, but more about the suffering that we experience in marriage. We've actually looked a lot at, at beauty so far. We, we've, we've spent a number of weeks talking about the beauty of marriage. We've talked about the beauty of God's plan for marriage, how he intends a husband and a wife to uniquely reflect his image to one another, all of God's character and his attributes that are a blessing uh, to us, that, that husbands and wives would be his image bearers just as God created us to be, remind his wife. The parable of marriage, that there's this mystery going on that God takes two people and makes them one, a bi-unity that reflects the tri-unity of God, that unity in community. 
and how the world would see that, that the world would notice this remarkable unity in a marriage. Uh, but they are still two people, right? And so last week we were looking at the persons of marriage, that God brings those two people together so that they would mesh like two hands, you know, holding one another. Uh, that they have complementary gifts, complementary roles, complementary skills that they bring together because one gender is not enough to adequately image forth God's character. And so a husband and wife uniquely, beautifully can do that together. Um, so there's been a lot of discussion about beauty, but we're going to talk about suffering today. Because this conversation that Jesus is having, really a, a test that the Pharisees, a trap that the Pharisees are trying to set before Jesus is uh, regarding the topic of divorce, right? So this concludes our series. I wish it was on a higher note, but it's not. So I'm just going to ask you to, to hang in there. This isn't, this isn't a fun sermon. But it's God's word to us. And we've got to take it into account. So we're going to acknowledge today that not all marriages are happy uh, marriages. Uh, there's, I'm, I'm making an estimate, but I think it's a, it's a safe estimate that maybe there's a quarter of you who, if you're married here in this room, you are deliciously happy in your marriage. And that's a, that's a gift. We're glad, we're glad for that. Probably half of you are, are good if you're married. You're good with one another. You're like, it's not, you're not on a mountaintop right now. You're not deliciously happy, but you're also not in, in the depths of despair. But then there's probably another quarter of you, the rest of you, if you're married, are tasting the, the bitterness of isolation. And you're going, I didn't sign up for this. This wasn't what I had in mind on my wedding day, and I'm looking for an out. I want things to change because I'm tired of being in a rowboat in the middle of a hurricane. That makes sense. That's a painful place to be. That's a place of suffering. So let's talk about that um, because it's natural for people to want to get out of suffering. We don't like to suffer, but I do want to remind you of some things that are hard but true. And then we'll, we'll talk about some hope. Um, but listen to Peter, 1 Peter 4. You're not going to like this verse, but still, listen. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. If you're suffering, don't be surprised that suffering comes. If you're suffering in marriage, don't be surprised. If you're suffering as a single person, don't be surprised. If you're suffering in whatever context, Peter's saying, look, this is not abnormal in a broken world with broken people with you know, sin affecting everything like it does. But rejoice insofar as, and this is the important part, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, which is, are you suffering for the right reason? that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed, right? This is talking about union with Christ. So let none of you suffer as, as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler, those who are not you know, united to Christ in their actions. But if you're suffering for righteousness' sake, that's, that's something we can rejoice in. That means we're united to Christ. So 
Contextually, what, how about it in the context of marriage? We add, do not suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler bringing harm on other in your marriage. Don't bring that. Suffer for righteousness' sake. Be patient in your suffering, as Jesus did. If anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. You know, I don't like that verse either. The saddest thing about suffering in marriage is the irony of it. When two people get married, why do they get married? They get married because they're, they're going to form a new family. They're deliciously in love. And they want, to, they want to spend the rest of their lives together. They want to create a home together. And what's a home? What is home? Home's a place to belong. Home is a place to be accepted. Home is a place to be embraced. Home is a place to be encouraged and blessed. But when suffering comes into a marriage, home becomes anything but. Home becomes a place of ridicule, a place of rejection. A place of scorn and isolation. That's a tragedy. It's not just irony, it's a tragedy. But that's what's so painful, uniquely painful about the suffering of marriage. Well, <clears throat> back to our text. Is there a way out? What kind of suffering justifies divorce? Um, there's a few things that we need to look at, and we're going to look at some other texts in addition, but, but as we're uh, in Mark 10, so the Pharisees come up, and in order to test Jesus, ask him, it's a little bit more of expanded point, but Matthew records additionally that the Pharisees were saying, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any cause? And that's the clue. Okay. This is a uh, inter-Jewish debate between conservative and liberal traditions within Judaism. Uh, the liberal tradition follows Rabbi Hillel, the school of Hillel. The conservative tradition follows Rabbi Shammai and his, uh, his group. And so the Hillel group says, really, for any cause, if, if the wife causes you any distress, husbands, just send her packing. Shammai says, no, 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 no. The only justifiable reason for divorce would be adultery, um, something of that nature. So how does Jesus respond to this trap? Uh, the larger context is the Pharisees want to get Jesus in trouble, either with Herod, with you know, the political sphere, or with the rabbis in the religious sphere. We don't have time to go into that. But Jesus is challenging this prevailing attitude of no-fault divorce that the Pharisees are trying to kind of promote and trap Jesus into. So instead of going straight into the topic of divorce, Jesus doesn't address the question directly. He's trying to affirm the beauty of marriage, right? He's advocating for the sanctity of marriage and how it's this gift that's given by God where a man and woman are united, one flesh, which a man, which we should not separate, right? So look at verses you know, 8 and following that there are no longer two but one flesh, but therefore God is joined together, let not man separate. 
And then we get into this more private conversation that Jesus has with his disciples when they're in the house, verse 10, and the disciples are following up and they're like, okay, so for real, is there an out? And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So at least in Mark's gospel, there's, there's no explicit. Matthew expands the narrative. Um, he's got, you know, a, another audience in mind, uh, and we'll get to that. But is Jesus silent regarding an allowable divorce? I mean, is that just not on the table at all? Well, if you remember the prophets, uh, or if if you're, if you're new to the Bible or new to the church, then, then the prophets were given by God to set the stage for Jesus. And the stage that Jesus steps onto is this context of marriage. He is the groom, and his people are his bride. The church is his bride. And the prophets were, were speaking to that, giving a foretaste of that. And Jeremiah says this to the, the, the rest of God's people that are in the southern kingdom of Judah, where Jerusalem is the capital city, the northern community, the northern tribe of Israel had already been uh, wiped out by Assyria. And God is pleading with his people in the southern kingdom to return to him, to, to, to lay down their idols and to, to repent and to be restored in their relationship with their God. And listen to how Jeremiah, through the Holy Spirit, describes this plea. Judah saw, this is the southern kingdom, Judah saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, the northern kingdom, that I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. God divorced Israel. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah, the southern kingdom, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. And God is describing the faithlessness of his people with the parable of adultery. And God had divorced his unfaithful people because of their adultery. So, expanded account, because jealousy and marries another commits adultery. So now we see that, okay, in a more expanded uh, version of Matthew 19, Jesus is aligning himself with the conservative position, the Shammai tradition, which is allowing for divorce, according to Jesus, in cases of sexual immorality, which is not just adultery. Adultery is a category of sexual immorality. Sexual immorality is a broader word. It's the word uh, porneia. We, that sounds familiar, right? It's a word, word that we get pornography from. So what do you do in the face of sexual sin in a, in a marriage relationship? Is that justifying divorce? Well, first thing to say is that it's, divorce is never commanded in the case of sexual immorality or adultery for that matter. But in certain cases, it is allowed. We don't have time to go into all of the nuts and bolts of that, um, I want to make sure that what you understand is that typically, typically, and I want to again use that, that um, disclaimer, typically, 
when there is some kind of sexual sin involved in a marriage relationship, the offended spouse can tend to make the sin worse than it is, typically. And typically, the offending spouse wants to minimize the degree of the offense. And you have all this emotion that's going on, all this broken relationship because of the sin, and what do you need to make sense of it? How do you move forward faithfully? How do you even determine, well, is this something that would justify even the possibility of separation or a divorce? You need community. You need spiritual authority. You need the church. You need a get help uh, to help you navigate this kind of suffering. But I do want you to see that, okay, this is an, a, a justified allowance for divorce in certain cases where there's sexual sin, adultery, to be sure, that that would justify the separation of what God had joined together. Is that the only provision? Is that the only allowable cause for a divorce? Paul tells us that there's an additional one, um, and he talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7. This is a, a number of verses, but I want you to just try to, uh, to tune in and hear what he's saying to two Christian uh, believers, man and uh, husband and wife, where he says that if a brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, I'm sorry, I, I got that wrong. This is a, a, a believer and an unbeliever, a married couple, one follows the Lord, the other doesn't. And if the unbelieving wife consents to live with the believing husband, he should not divorce her. And if any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him, which is a remarkable statement to say in the first century, by the way, when women didn't have any legal rights. Paul's affirming that she has rights. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife. And the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But as it is, they are holy. And now here's this important caveat. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, is not bound. God has called you to live at peace. How do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So Paul is making it clear that a Christian should not seek divorce from his or her unbelieving spouse. Um, presumably, two unbelievers are married. One becomes a Christian. The other one, myth or legend or whatever. You know, spouse, don't leave your unbelieving spouse if they are still willing to be part of this, you know, home and still want to make a home with you. How do you know? that God's not going to use you to bring repentance and salvation to your spouse. Peter agrees. Uh, he says in chapter 3 of his first epistle, likewise, wives, you know, we can insert husbands here. Likewise, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. So if if you're in a situation where your spouse isn't a believer, isn't following Jesus, isn't demonstrating repentance, your job is not to bail on them, but instead to show them 
what it's like to follow Jesus, what it's like to have a life that's lived consistently with the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of self. So those are two conditions where the Bible allows for this bond that God has made to be separated. Are there any others? The short answer is no. The short answer is no. The world would say there's multiple, millions of reasons why you can separate. If you're not happy, get out. But if, if we take this book seriously, you can flip all these pages and those are the only two clauses you're going to find. But what about abuse, right? What about, you know, other kinds of suffering? What, let's, let's just talk about abuse for a second. I want to make something really, really clear. If you're in an abusive relationship, get help. You need, to, you need to get protection. And it's the church to stay in an endangered But is that a cause for divorce? It could lead to one. But the hope of the Christian is to believe that God might lead my spouse, you know, if, if you're in that kind of uh, suffering would lean my spouse to repentance. But if my spouse doesn't repent, then what? Well, like I said before, you need the community of the church. You need authority who can speak to what exactly is going on here. And if that person continues to not to be unrepentant, if that person does not demonstrate repentance, the church, after its process is you know, running through its course, has no choice but to regard that person as habitually unrepentant, to, to regard them as somebody who's outside of the repenting community of the church. That's all, we heard the word excommunication. That's what that means. To regard that person as unrepentant, not a believer. A person can say they believe in Jesus, but their repentance is what proves it. Otherwise, their faith is just counterfeit. And if that person is proven to be an unbeliever and if they're living in a way that's, you know, bringing harm onto the relationship where they're manifestly showing that they don't want to have a healthy marriage, there are cases where that could be considered abandonment. There's more, this is way too much for, to, to tackle in one sermon, um, so I just want to give you that, uh, that context but I do want to make sure that you understand that the Bible is very, very narrow when it comes to an allowable divorce. Because the Bible is elevating something higher in our marriages than our own personal happiness. Because what the gospel says is that, no, God's kingdom is more important. I like how uh, Paul Tripp put, puts it in his book, What Did You Expect? There's a Wednesday home group on marriage that's going through this book. Uh, I want to encourage you. Paul Tripp says that this side of heaven, there's a God. And every battle you have with other people, whether you're married or whether you're just in any relationship, every battle that you have with other people is the result of that deeper war. So when you are losing this war, you live for yourself, and invariably it ends in conflict with your husband and wife. I know that there can be 
a lot of suffering in marriage, but suffering is not an excuse for a divorce. Suffering is an invitation to look to Jesus, not to divorce for comfort, for relief, for blessing, for acceptance, for welcome, for gladness. Now, there's probably some questions here. If you've already been divorced, what do you do? Um, you know, again, please talk to your shepherding elder to determine whether or not that was actually something that was biblical in terms of uh, a, a legitimate divorce. I want you to hear Paul say in 1 Corinthians 7 that if you're married, um, he gives this charge that the wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband and the husband should not divorce his wife. Meaning, hold out hope for reconciliation. How do you know that God might not change the heart of you know, your estranged spouse, perhaps, still in God's eyes? Or what if I'm already uh, divorced and remarried? You know, I'm on my second marriage or third marriage or you know, you, you know how it goes. Well, ask yourself, what was my role in the breakdown of the previous marriage or marriages? If you're already remarried, God's put you in that new marriage. You're a new creation. You got to hang in there. This is your new marriage. But do some reflection. Take inventory of what was your part in previous uh, breakdowns, and perhaps your exes do break down prior. Listen to um, Andre Sue, she, uh, Sue Peterson, she's on her second marriage, her first husband uh, passed away, she was a widower. She writes for World Magazine, this was an article that she did back in November, she says, I'm in my second marriage, and God has seen fit to let me confront the same obstacles in my autumn marriage as in my springtime one. And I strongly suspect that if I were six more times bereft by death of a husband and six more times remarried, the same walls would crop up as if they, had, if they had not been mastered previously. So how unlikely a coincidence is it that the walls are every husband's fault, not mine? Did your relationship strategies work in the first marriage? What are the odds they will work any better in the second when you see these repeating patterns of obstacles, difficulties, suffering coming into our marriages, we have to ask not just what's wrong with my spouse, what's wrong with you know, this person, but what am I doing to contribute to that? God says that he hates divorce in Malachi 2. He hates it. It's costly. It's costly to love. It costs God to love. But God is married. Through the gospel, through the new covenant, through what Jesus did, he took on a bride, the church. And did you know that God suffers in his marriage? He knows the pain of rejection, of condescension, of faithlessness. First, uh, in, in Ephesians 5, Paul tells husbands to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. When he hung on a cross to forgive our sins, the sins of his bride, when he laid down his life to demonstrate how he, that she might be whole. 
Most of us feel like, you know, we're the offended party, not the offending party. But we're both. Every one of us is a victim. Every one of us is a perpetrator. And Jesus loved every one of us. And when we trust in him and when we believe in him and we cast our sins on him, he takes them away. He takes our guilt and our shame away and he makes us new creations so that he makes the offending spouse holy and without blemish and he makes the rejected spouse without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He can make both spouses new creations. There's always hope in a marriage. There's always hope in the storm. And this is how God's grace empowers couples, not, even, not only in their good times, but especially when they are suffering. So when people tell you that there's no difference between the divorce rate of the culture and the church, don't believe them. Yeah, there's plenty of people that would take the title or the label of Christian but aren't following Jesus. But when you have a husband and wife who are both following Jesus, good things happen in their marriage. But you nonetheless still have a husband and wife who are both sinners living in a broken world, and that means that suffering's going to happen too. But the gospel can help us overcome that. We have to do our part. Take it on yourself through the power of the gospel to bring blessing to your marriage, blessing to your friendships, your relationships if you're single. Ephesians 5, you know, like that whole part about Christ loving the church, gave himself up for her, you go, yeah, 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 I know that. But that's not helping me. That doesn't seem to be making a difference in my suffering. Well, Ephesians 5 began with these words. Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Be God's image bearers and sacrificial life of Christ, just as God loved us, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Why are we looking for loopholes to get out of hard marriages instead of trusting in grace to grow our marriages into good marriages? The world's looking for loopholes. We need to look for Christ. There may be a hundred things that you would love to change about your spouse or about your friend or about this person in your life who's making your life difficult, right? Who's bringing suffering into your life. There may be a hundred things you'd like to change about them. Can you name three things that your spouse would like to change about you? Can you name three things? Three things that your coach would like to change about you, your teacher would like to change about you, your roommate would like to change about you. Why are the problems always somebody else's problems? And we judge them harshly and we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt every time. The gospel is calling us to repentance and renewal and honesty before the Lord where we go, all right, I need to change. I need to change. To grow to be sanctified. And God uses marriage especially to to bring that kind of awareness and that need for change to our life. So what's the most God-like quality that you can image to one another? If you're a husband and wife or if you're a friend or whatever the case may be, what's the most God-like quality that you can reflect to the other person? Is it his, his wisdom? Is it his 
is holiness, it is justice, it is truth. What's the most God-like quality? It's love. It's love. How does love grow? How is love tested to stories, all the best movies, that love is proven and love shows its strength when there is suffering, right? We need a love that can cherish not only in health but in sickness. We need a love that can cherish not only in riches but in poverty. We need a love that can cherish not only in good times but in hard times for better and for worse till death parts us. And this this puts a new perspective on the verses that you hear at weddings. Those verses from 1 Corinthians 13 that sound very flowery and wonderful, especially when two people are deliciously in love. But I want you to hear these verses especially if you're tasting bitterness. I want you to hear God speaking these verses over you. I want to challenge you. This is how to bring sweetness into your suffering relationship. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. God's love for us through Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, we pray that you would remind us of your love that you would show us the beauty and the strength and the glory of your love that would love us even through suffering, even through the suffering of the cross, in order to redeem us, in order to forgive us, in order to make us new, in order to make us clean without spot or wrinkle or any other blemish, in order to bring blessing to our relationship. Or would you grow our capacity to love as we receive your love, as we live out of the gospel, as we live out of the kingdom of God so that we would repent of the kingdom of self, that we would learn how to have a deeper, stronger, more robust love, your kind of love. We pray for all the marriages here at Tabernacle, of course, and we ask for you to bless them. Thank you for those that are deliciously in love. We pray for grace for those who are tasting bitterness. For those that are coasting, Lord, just please bless them. Help them to continue to work on marriage. Help us all. And for those that aren't married, who are wrestling even with, what is this sermon all about? This isn't about me. Lord, please help us 
to see all of our relationships in light of your kingdom, all of our relationships in light of the love that you have for us. And Lord, we turn now and we pray uh, for particular families and households at Tabernacle. We ask for your blessing over.